Our title for this evening is The Working Man's Blues, taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 to 26, a very important text related to labor. But before we look at that and consider how often labor becomes twisted in our own thinking, I want to tell you the story about a room that I learned about recently considered by the, the Guinness Book of World Records to be the quietest room, the quietest place on the planet. It is a room that is built at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, Washington. It's known as the anechoic chamber, after the word echo, and it measures at an average background noise level of negative 20 decibels. For comparison, if you would be in a, in a quiet library reading room, it would measure around 20 decibels. This room is in the negative 20 decibels. The room is constructed from six layers of steel reinforced concrete. It's disconnected from other buildings and it's held up by vibration dampening springs. And on the interior, you have this very fascinating design. It is made up of fiberglass wedges on the floor, walls, and ceiling that are designed to break up sound waves before they can bounce. Very few people have remained in that room for very long at all. In fact, about the record is about one hour. So on the one hand, while it is the quietest room, it also is one of the most frightening. And here's why. After a few minutes in the room, you begin to hear your own heartbeat. And then shortly after that, you begin to hear the various functions of your body. You you hear your lungs fill with air and expel air. You hear blood circulating through your veins. Your digestive system all of a sudden becomes alive. You hear it all. And even the slightest movement of your body results in in the sound of bones grinding. And the absence of any other background noise to, to suffocate and smother those noises gradually drives people crazy. People report an unbearable ringing, of all things, in the ears, impaired spatial awareness, and eventually the complete loss of balance. The brain is simply not able to function without the presence of distracting sounds. Well, in many ways, this is an analogy to how men treat work. Unable to deal with the most pressing questions of life, unable to deal with particularly the reality of death, of life's fleetingness, We seek to fill our lives with a lot of background noise. And for men, largely, that is labor. We work hard, and often our working is, whether intentionally or perhaps subtly intended, to drown out all the the noises we do not want to hear. We do not want to consider certain questions And so we work hard. We work night and day. And often, as I said, that can be intended as a distraction, a a diversion 
from the most important things that we know we must answer. In fact, there's an interesting section in in a philosopher's writing by the name of uh, Blaise Pascal. He's a 17th century mathematician and philosopher, and in one of his works, he includes these words about how man fills his life with all kinds of distractions in order not to consider the most important issues. He says this, quote, If our condition were truly happy, we would not need diversion, diversion from thinking of it in order to make ourselves happy. Diversion, death, is easier to bear without thinking of it than is the thought of death without peril. The miseries of the human life have established all this. As men have seen this, they have taken up diversion. Diversion, as men are not able to fight against death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken it into their heads in order to be happy, not to think of them at all. In many ways, that's what we find in Ecclesiastes 2, that Solomon is seeking to avoid those those basic sounds, those most important issues of life. And so he's seeking that room that's not quiet, but the room that is filled with all kinds of background noise to suffocate the most important issues of life. That's what we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. And as we look at that text, it's broken up into two paragraphs, and really they represent two different perspectives, both from the same man, but one from the perspective of seeking to explain life or find meaning from a perspective that is oriented to the self, that is based on life under the sun. And the other paragraph that is then based on a divine perspective as Solomon is rescued from that unwillingness to consider the most important issues in life. And as we break up these two paragraphs, we can essentially identify them this way. The first one, as we deal with the working man's blues, the first one really contains the working man's stark realities. As Solomon just looks plainly, as he looks very openly at labor under the sun, according to the orientation based around oneself as a means to try to drown out those most important questions of life, we see him dealing with stark realities that leave him at a loss. The working man's stark realities. Let's look at the text. This paragraph runs from verses 18 to 23. He says this, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun." When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. 
This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Now in this first paragraph what we see are are three different observations, three different realities that Solomon observes as he looks at at work simply from a human perspective. And each of those observations ends with that phrase, this too is vanity, this too is vanity, and a great evil, and this too is vanity. We, we find these three statements given in, in two verses each, verses 18 and 19, and, and then verse 20 and 21, and then verses 22 and, and 23. And when we look at this particular declaration, as Solomon recounts the observations he made from a human perspective without any divine intervention, apart from any revelation, we see the view of what we could call a materialist. In fact, one commentator has said this, this account, this paragraph, is a sobering account of the relentless anxiety of the materialist who lives under the shadow of unavoidable death. Let's look at Solomon's three observations that he makes about work. First of all, as he looks at it honestly and openly, but still from that human perspective, he sees that you cannot keep the fruit of your labor. You cannot keep the fruit of your labor. He says, thus I hated, verse 18, thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Now what Solomon does here is is he comes to the inescapable reality that he will die, but he still holds out hope that perhaps the fruit of his labor, all of his achievements, his resume may somehow outlive him. That he can, even from the grave as it were, live vicariously through his achievements. You see, Solomon longs for something permanent, as we all do, but he's looking at it from the context under the sun, and so for him, seeking to find significance seeking to find satisfaction, he says, okay, I'm going to die one day. I've I've realized that. But you know, I can work hard and produce something that then can live after me and carry on me from the grave. But as he looks at it, he realizes that's impossible. In the beginning of verse 18, he says, thus I hated it. It comes, it, it ties us back to the last sentence of the previous paragraph, verse 17, so I hated life, but this statement, thus I hated, is even more intense. What Solomon does as he has looked at his his testimony, as he's looked at the different experiences that he had, the experiments, he, he concludes in verse 17 that he hated life in general, but now he takes a particular aspect of it that is specifically or particularly odious and it is labor. And here, the the object of this revulsion is all 
the fruit of my labor for which he had labored. In his experiments, he had already described his experiment with work. If you look back at verse 10, he does describe a temporary high that can come from work. He says in verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for my labor. Back in verse 10, he's still early on in the process. And as all of us can attest to, even with an unbiblical approach to labor, there is that kind of initial satisfaction that comes from achievement. It's always there. In fact, that's what makes labor and work and striving to achieve things so tempting. There is that initial that initial high that comes from a job well done, from that paycheck, that comes from achieving something, building something. But by the time Solomon gets to verse 18, he's now past that. He's looking at everything. He's looking at the fruit, the fruit of all of his labor, and now he looks at it with revulsion. He says, He refers to this labor under the sun. Now, that's a very important description. Now, this term appears frequently in Ecclesiastes. It's already been used five times in chapter 1 from verse 1 all the way to uh, chapter 2, verse 17. And in those sections, it's used five times. But in the span of these six verses under the sun, is repeated four times. It's repeated with exceptional repetition to again emphasize to us Solomon's orientation. And under the sun refers to that domain of creaturely existence. We who are under the sun are dependent. We're dependent upon that very sun. And we who are under the sun are creaturely and finite because we even mark our time by the sun. And if there's one thing that Solomon has already observed is that the sun keeps going around and around and around and we don't outlive the sun. That idiom to be under the sun emphasizes work from the perspective of the creature. And here is what is particularly problematic as Solomon explains why work can be so odious. He says, For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. It's it's like that saying goes, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You leave it behind. Solomon realized that the limited amount of enjoyment that he got from achievement would end the moment that he transferred that achievement over to another. It doesn't keep going. And Solomon asks the question, and who knows whether this inheritor will be a wise man or a fool. And the question, the way he asks the question, is not to suggest he's genuinely curious or inquisitive. The way that he asks the question indicates he already knows the answer. There's no guarantees, and more likely than not, the reality will be 
that the one who inherits the achievement will be a fool. He goes on to say in in verse 19, he says, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. Solomon knew that he had worked hard. He had strove to achieve what he did by applying wisdom and knowledge, but that wouldn't be how the person necessarily would act upon receiving the fruit of his labor. There is no guarantee. And and the risk increases to the degree that you have worked hard for your labor. And every one of you knows that. You, You think through those things yourself. If you're young and you don't have a lot to pass down, you don't really think about it, there's not a huge risk there. You might have an old beat-up car. Who cares, really, who gets that? But the longer that you work, you all of a sudden have a house and a savings account, a retirement account, and all kinds of other things. And so to the degree that you have invested, now the risk increases that that is going to be squandered. Solomon says this, too, is vanity. By this time in Solomon's life, by the way, Solomon had already received the prophecy of 1 Kings 11 verses 9 to 13. I won't read the whole section. You can do that later, but in 1 Kings 11, 9 to 13, the Lord pronounces his judgment upon Solomon for how Solomon had disobeyed the Lord and later on in that section, he, 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 he promises to Solomon, the Lord himself does, that he will take that which Solomon had achieved, the pinnacle of that, that, that kingdom, all the possessions and all that was represented by Solomon's reign. It would be handed over to Solomon's son, and from the hands of Solomon's son, all those achievements would be torn away. And you can look at 1 Kings chapter 12 to read how that happened. Notice the foolishness of Rehoboam. 1 Kings 12, 8, but he forsook the counsel of his elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Verse 13 says, the king, that is Rehoboam, answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And as you keep reading in chapter 12, uh, revolt breaks out, the people rebel, the kingdom is divided, and there is no return to the glories of Solomon's kingdom. You can't keep it. That's one of the blues of the working man. Secondly, you can't control it. You can't control the fruit of your labor. Very much echoing what he's just said. In verses 20 to 21, he says this, Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. He says, I completely despaired. The idea is is that I turned my heart aside to despair. This was something where Solomon, and and perhaps really as kind of the pinnacle of uh, of his descent into that dark valley, he, he specifically turns his 
heart into that darkness of disillusionment, of cynicism. That which brought that initial high now is the very source of disillusionment and despair. I actively, I purposefully, I intentionally turned my heart to the darkness because of this reality. Solomon had prided himself that what he had achieved had been achieved through the careful, wise application of all kinds of good principles. You could equate that today to the man who starts off small, who abides by the law, who goes to school, does the hard work, never cheats, never steals, is always honest, always is, is telling the truth, is willing to take a hit even when it means being honest, and over time, slowly by slowly, he accumulates this wealth, but in the end, it's turned over to someone who doesn't abide by the same ethics. You see, he saw his problem was the, the legacy, that legacy of wisdom, hard work, playing by the rules, that legacy would be given to one who did not labor according to the same rules. What we find here is that Solomon explicitly acknowledges here the danger of, 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 of receiving wealth without working for it. He knows that that's not a good thing. It will be squandered. And he calls this A great evil. This too is vanity, he says, and a great burden to have to bear. In fact, there's many different proverbs that have been expressed from or about this reality in all kinds of different contexts. For example, there is a a Chinese proverb that says, wealth does not last beyond three generations. And if you talk with certain financial planners or inheritance lawyers, they they will cite the statistics. Here's one of them. They they call it the three-generational curse. Seventy percent of families that inherit wealth are no longer wealthy by the second generation. And approximately 90% of such families lose all of that wealth by the third generation. That's what happens when you receive wealth without having to apply wisdom and knowledge and skill. You can't control the fruit of your labor in inheritance, Solomon observes. Thirdly, you can't be satisfied by it. You cannot find satisfaction in the fruit of your labor from a purely human perspective. Looking at work, this is a guarantee, looking at work purely under the sun in this world, the world that we know it as under the curse, bearing the consequences of sin, groaning, as the Apostle Paul says, you will never find true enjoyment in this world. He says this in verses 22 to 23. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. 
He asks the question, for what does a man get? Solomon asks here about the payoff for all that hard work. He's asking about enjoyment. Where does the enjoyment come? And this question really repeats what he had asked at the very beginning of the section. And this actually helps us determine that the first main section of this book is really from 1 verse 3 all the way to 1 verse or 2 verse 23. Because in 1 verse 3, if you look at 1 verse 3, he asks this, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And now here in verse 23, he, he answers that question by saying, none. Just from a human perspective, in trying to find significance and satisfaction from an orientation toward work which puts you at the center and looks at work as the source for any possible significance and satisfaction and meaning in life, Solomon lays it out and says, there is nothing. There is nothing. Rather than enjoyment, what will you reap? He says pain, referring to the physical pains of labor. All of us are familiar with that. He says it is grievous. You inherit, you receive as your paycheck, so to speak, grief, speaking to the emotional toll that work has. In fact, he goes on to say, even at night, his mind does not rest. The, the working man, in his effort to try to drown out all the important issues of life, in his effort to find his meaning and identity in his labor, cannot put it down to rest. It, it doesn't provide him with it. So his thought is, if I just work a little harder and a little harder, and then the anxiety and the stress begin, and all of a sudden the man cannot even find sleep at night. He cannot even find any kind of retreat from that work. It has consumed him. And that reality describes a lot of men in this generation as it has throughout human history. It reflects what we read in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you are taken for you are dust. And to dust you will return. But here's the issue. Not only does bread come to you only through toil, but even when you are able to make the bread and eat the bread, you won't even enjoy the bread. That's where Solomon is at in this kind of of approach, in seeking what could not be found in work, in seeking it in work nonetheless. Reminds us of what the psalmist says in Psalm 127, Verses 1 and 2, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain you rise up early to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors. That's not all that the psalmist says. He goes on to say this, for he, God, gives to his beloved even in sleep. And what we see now also in Ecclesiastes is that in the same way you have this enigma answered in Psalm 127 from what work is for those who labor in vain 
to those who receive from God a difference in orientation, the same paradigm is what we find in our text in Ecclesiastes. Notice now the shift that occurs in verse 24. And here we find Solomon pulling back and giving us one of those moments of relief and pointing us to, in this long discussion of the most fundamental issues of life, he pulls back and says, I want to give you some relief. Let me tell you of an important conclusion that you must make at this point. Verses 24 to 26, Solomon writes this, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now what's important to note here is that this text, verses 24, 25, and 26, serve as what is called the first carpe diem text in the book of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon is going to do several times as he builds up to the final climax, the conclusion of the matter, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, what Solomon is going to do is he's going to sprinkle in these very important texts that keep the reader, that keeps the reader hopeful. And here's the first one. What we find is this. What's interesting to note is that from 1 verse 13 on to this particular verse, verse 24, is that the name God does not appear at all. From verse 1 verse 13 on, God is not present. All that's present is is Solomon. And and his whole observation, his whole experiment is taking place under the sun. But what happens now in verse 24 is um, an important shift, an important transition. And now all of a sudden, God is the center. And it changes how Solomon looks at labor. Solomon now provides the conclusive answer to the question of the brevity of life. And we're going to see it in his words. That yes, life is short. It can end at any moment. You, You can't You can't live forever. you got to get that out of your system. So then how do we live in a brief life? How do we live in a a life that we know can end at any time? And Solomon's going to say this, enjoy the goodness of God. Enjoy the goodness of God. And that will only happen as Solomon will will say that will only happen when an ultimate question is answered. We get rid of work as that distracting sound and deal with our relationship with the transcendent creator. And then we're able to look back at our lives, at the mundane things here in this world and realize that in a short life, we can enjoy what God has given. He gives us one observation per verse here. First, he says this, recognize that what God God gives is, is good. 
recognize that what God gives is good. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, he, he says this. He, he, he looks and says he's waiting to see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the sun. Now he answers that question and says, here is the good. You could even translate it this way. He says, there is nothing better than, a, than for a man. Or you could translate it as this. There is nothing good for a man except that he should find enjoyment. There is nothing good for a man except that he should find enjoyment. And how or where is he to find enjoyment? Solomon says this, he's to find it when he eats and drinks and, and he's to find it in his labor. These actions, these activities describe the most basic things of life. These are things that everyone does. They're intended to show that, that which is most common, that which is most mundane to men, to eat, to drink, and to work. And Solomon exhorts us to treat these things not as, as, as some kind of condemnation or punishment, but to see them from the hand of God and to appreciate them as good gifts. And you might say, well, where is the reference to good gifts in our text? Well, it's there subtly, but it'll be brought out in more dramatic fashion in a few texts in in chapter 3 and chapter 5. We won't go there, but in chapter 3, verse 13, he specifically lists eating and drinking and labor as the gift of God. He says the same thing in chapter 5, verse 19, that these things are gifts of God. And and we could even look at, 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 into the New Testament when the Apostle Paul is, is preaching, and he's preaching in Lystra to very superstitious pagans. And there Paul says in Acts 14 verse 17 that God did not leave himself without a witness in this world. How? In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, the thing about pagans, as we saw even with Solomon, as he looked at through the, the, the glasses, the, 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 the bifocals of a human perspective, the thing about pagans is that they don't recognize this. They don't recognize these things as gifts from God, and so are not able to enjoy them. But God has given them as things to enjoy, even in this brief life. And what that testifies to is the reality, men, that although Genesis 3 speaks very clearly about the effects of the curse in our world, those effects have not obliterated the manifestation of God's character in this same creation. That with the right perspective, with the right orientation, this world is not just filled with curse. It is not just filled with vanity, with vapor, with emptiness with fleetingness, you can look on this world and see the good gifts of God. It all depends on perspective. Recognize that the things that God gives are good, 
They flow from his character. Secondly, recognize that satisfaction then is only going to be realized with a right relationship with God. Notice verse 25, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? That was Solomon's problem. He tried to do those things for himself. He treated work as a source of of goodness in and of itself. And that's not what work and eating and drinking are intended to do. But as he comes to this redemptive view of work, of, of labor, he sees that with a right relationship with God, there can be true enjoyment apart Apart from God, working only under the sun, working only for what labor produces, there will never be true enjoyment. There will only be brief moments, enough to make you dissatisfied and strive for more. But with the right relationship, as Solomon is going to go on to say, by fearing God, by placing that reverent faith in the Creator, recognizing him who he is, and finding in him you're all in all, then all of a sudden, those things which were once odious can be enjoyed. True enjoyment can be had even for those very much aware of the fleetingness of this life. Orientation makes all the difference. There's a great statement by the Scottish theologian Henry Scougal, in his classic work, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, he pulls this together so well. Listen to this quote. A soul will never know what solid joy and lasting pleasure mean until, weary of itself, It renounces all its possessions and gives itself up to the author of its being. A person molded in this way will find pleasure in all the dispensations of providence. Temporal enjoyments take on a different complexion and become all the more pleasurable when a person tastes the divine goodness in them, and recognizes them as tokens of love sent by his dear Lord and Master. Solomon is saying that same message. That when the relationship with our Creator and Redeemer, when it is right, when it is good, when it is solid and vibrant, then we are in the position not to flee from the things of this world, not to flee from labor, not to pursue a kind of asceticism or a monastic life. That's a wrong application of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon is saying is with the right orientation, with the right attitude, the the, the placing of God as the center of finding in Him that priority that, 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 uh, that outshines everything else, then all of a sudden we look on the mundane things of this world and we can enjoy them. Brothers, out of all of the inhabitants of this world, as we look at all the things in this world, there is only one category that can truly find enjoyment that can embrace these things that God has created and say they're good 
They bring pleasure. And the only people who can do that are those who are fearful in the right sense of the God who made them. And that brings us to our third point. Recognize that reverent faith is the key. We don't have a lot of time to get into this, but verse 26 summarizes this. And we have to understand it carefully, and just I'll make a few comments on this. Solomon says, for to a person who is good in his sight, keep that in mind. For a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity. It's a vapor. It's a striving after the wind. Now, what Solomon does here is he contrasts two people with different experiences. First, there's the sinner. The sinner, very clearly, from looking at Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes as well as Proverbs, the sinner is the one who rebels against God's law. And his experience is despair. His experience is exactly what Solomon described in verses 18 through 23. The the great evil. That's what the sinner can expect and will only experience in his sinful state in life under the sun. There is no other option. But to the good one, the one who is good in God's sight. You might say, well, who is that referring to? Well, if we look at all of Ecclesiastes, the way to describe the good man is the man who fears. The good man, the one who's good in God's sight, is the one who fears the Lord and keeps his commandments. 12 verse 13. We could look at it in in terms of Proverbs as well, that that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. As you look at Proverbs, you see the fear of the Lord results in joy. Those three ideas, wisdom, knowledge, and joy, Solomon says elsewhere, only come from that reverent faith in the Creator as one who has everything that Creator And the person who is good in God's sight comes with nothing of his own and finds his all in all in God. So we wrap this up. What are we to hear from Solomon? Let me give you just a few closing thoughts here. First of all, men, you need to know this. The distractions will only hold for so long. Evaluate your lives and your work ethic And we're all for a very strong work ethic. We'll talk about that even as we go through Ecclesiastes. Men were created to work. But let me tell you, if work is intended as a distraction, it will only hold for so long. And let me say this, in your labor, if you've never felt the kind of frustration that Solomon did in verses 18 through 23, maybe it's because you're using work as a distraction, trying to avoid those stark realities. You're living that hundred decibel life, trying to, trying to, to drown out any of these important questions. But that's only going to last so long, and you will come to a brick wall. Number two, recognizing the reality of death and the transience of life is a blessing. In other words, the sooner you put two and two together, the sooner you realize you're going to die. You don't even know when. It's going to come sooner than you think. That the sooner you come to that realization, that you think about it, you ponder it, you don't fear it, 
the, the sooner you'll realize that you'll be able to live life the right way. You know, in certain circles, death, the, the topic of death is anathema. You can't even raise the issue. And automatically, hush, don't speak. We don't want to hear that around here. No, for us to be true men, we need to think deeply about death. And, and the more that we do in the right way, the more it'll be a blessing because it will allow us to orient our lives appropriately. Number three, we need to see that God is a good God. We need not just focus on Genesis 3, 17 to 19. We need not just focus on the curse and the groaning of this world. Yes, those are realities. We take them into consideration. We realize what that means for our lives, but we also have to realize the goodness of God has not changed. He is still the good God he has been from eternity past. And he is a good God, which means that a proper orientation to him means that we need to find that goodness everywhere. We need to seek it, not in and of itself, but as expressions of that love of a father to his children. Number four, only believers can enjoy the things of this life. Don't believe those those stories of the rich and famous in those shiny magazines where they look so happy. Don't believe that, men. We know better on the basis of God's word. There is no happiness there. There is only fear, dissatisfaction. We are the ones who can find true joy and enjoyment in this life. And number five, we can do so in the mundane things. Ecclesiastes is not a call to join a monastery, to go out into the Mojave Desert, to climb up a pole, and to try to get away as much as possible from the things of this earth. Ecclesiastes is not that. It is a call to enjoy the things of this life, but always and only as an expression, as the byproduct of a right relationship with the Creator who is our Redeemer, the one whom we fear. And men, let me ask you, is that your outlook on life? Let's pray that it is. Father, we are so grateful for this reminder to shock us and to open our eyes to the realities of life that we so often ignore and find other things to drown those things out. Lord, we pray that the implications of this text would resound deeply within us. Your Spirit would push them deeply. We confess, as Solomon did, the futility, the foolishness of trying to find our satisfaction and enjoyment in things for their own sakes. Father, seize our attention and bend it upwards above the sun to you that we would find our satisfaction in you, our significance in you. And then as we do that, that we would live out the full implications of that, which means that everything that you have created for us is to be enjoyed. And in the same way that it, it, it forces us to exclaim thanksgiving or, or, or amazement when we see a great mountain that, that we cannot help but, 
express amazement. May that be for every aspect of our mundane lives, our labor, our food, our drink, that we would express this thanksgiving to you, receiving it from you as a good gift for us even in our brief lives here upon this earth. And through this, may you receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Men, you are dismissed to your groups. If you are a first-time visitor, please come to the front. I'd love to meet you. Uh, and, And we'll get some good resources into your hands. If you are here but you still don't have a group, a permanent group, please come to the front as well, and we'll put you in one for the discussion tonight. Have a good night.